of the frame i'm your host connor reed and here's your other host john skinner glad to be here i feel like i'm just reeling you back in with more excuses to watch indiana jones that's why i'm here <laughs> it's mostly to watch indiana jones as part of john's podcasting contract is that every six months we have to cover some sort of episode that makes us at least watch one of the indiana jones movies yes it's like one of those movie rights things if we ever go six months without watching indiana jones i get the rights to the podcast and i get to turn it into whatever i want it and you get to pay for all the stuff. <laughs> yes, I get to pay for all the stuff. It's a it's a double edged sword, which <laughs> a as blessing we, and a curse. Yeah, which we, as we know is is not as good as a gun. Well, for those of you listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. So we are kind of getting close to the end of our retelling or ripoff series where we examine films that maybe have borrowed some stylistic elements from a previous movie or have just completely stolen from them and kind of examine why they made those choices and how it holds up to the original and whether it's a good ripoff or retelling and whether if it's actually a ripoff or retelling as well. So yeah, we are covering Romancing the Stone slash Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, or as it was originally known, just Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember whenever we talked about this, and I think one of the reasons why we chose to do this was because there was a guest that we were potentially going to have on this that wasn't actually able to make it. So yeah, it's interesting kind of reckoning with whether this film is actually fits into this category, and I think it does in a narrow way, and like with a lot of these other previous ones that we've looked at, it hasn't been as clear cut and dry as maybe something like Fistful of Dollars or Super 8 or that whole sort of thing. But I think this still definitely plays into it, but just in a very different way than some of the previous ones. Look, we both love adventure movies, and I think there's later ones that, we'll talk about it, but that are more inspired by this. But it is an interesting question because, uh, especially as a type of movie that we both love, how much of a specific type of adventure movie becomes its own genre? Because right now it's sort of a dying genre. So much so that it's like, oh, another one comes out and they all feel like they're tied to each other because we're just not used to seeing this anymore. So the question is, back in the day when that this wasn't the case and, and they, there were more of these types of movies coming out, how much are they just the same genre and how much are they borrowing from each other? So that'll be a question that we can talk through. Yeah. Well, before we get into our discussion, I'm just going to start us off with a quick summary of the film. An introverted romance novelist receives a call from her kidnapped sister telling her to bring a mysterious package to Columbia to save her. She lands in Columbia and is misdirected by an undercover cop to take a bus in the wrong direction. It crashes into a truck in the middle of the jungle and she is attacked by the cop but is rescued by a wandering bird hunter. She pays him to take her to the nearest phone, and they begin their trek through the jungle. They realize that the package contains a map to a hidden treasure not far from where they are. They are pursued by one of the two brothers who kidnapped her sister and the cop who brings along the local police force for the hunt. They make their way to a small village where a local drug distributor helps them escape from the ensuing forces. 
They continue their journey and make it to the telephone, where they end up falling for each other more and more. After a night of dancing, they decide to actually go after the treasure instead of just handing in the map. They make their way to a hidden waterfall, and unbeknownst to them, in the car that they have taken is the brother. They find their way in through the cave and find the stone in there and are met outside by the cop and the now majorly amassed police force, and they are chased into a river. They make their way back to the Colombian town, separated, and the writer makes contact with the other brother who tells her to bring the map to an undisclosed location. She meets them there in the middle of the night and hands over the map and gets her sister back, but they are surprised by the bird hunter and the other police force and all fight after the jewel. The bird hunter kicks the stone towards the pond of crocodiles, where the cop catches it right before falling into the pond. His hand is then bitten off by one of the crocodiles who then also eats the jewel. A crazy firefight ensues and the brothers try to escape and the rest of the police force is dispersed through the gunfire. The writer is pursued by a cop and the bird hunter goes after the crocodile. But just as he's about to grab the crocodile and stop it from jumping off into the river, he realizes that the writer is in danger. He runs up just in time to see that she has knocked him into the pit of crocodiles. The rest of the police come in and the bird hunter makes a quick escape and the writer heads back to New York. She finishes her new book and is met outside by the bird hunter in the yacht that he was always wanting. And they ride off down the street in the boat happily ever after, or at least until the sequel. My two words are knowing fun. This movie kind of knows how ridiculous it is and it doesn't care and it has fun with it, which is great. That's what you want from an adventure movie. Uh, And it's fun. It does a lot of things. This is a criticism I have of some of the more recent adventure movies that are maybe even more of a a slam dunk ripoff, more directly inspired by this movie, where not actually that much stuff happens. And rewatching this, I was like, oh yeah, this is how movies used to be that did the adventure movie thing back when the the golden age of that, of doing that in the 80s and before. Golden age is, is a weird term for it, but like before we stopped making these movies, basically, People weren't as worried, you know, they weren't as worried as, oh, the internet will tear apart the fact that these none of these plot points make a lick of sense. Who cares? We get a bazillion, a bunch of car chases or a bunch of action scenes and all these fun things happening. It feels like a, a really kinetic movie. And I think uh, it works because of that. It's having fun and it knows it. And that, and that really uh, is it for me, makes it a really great movie. We could talk about this. I kind of forgot how different this is than Indiana Jones in terms of the romance is really important. I knew it was a bigger deal in this than Indiana Jones was basically non-existent. You know, he has a romance with napping more than anything. But in this, it's obviously a romance movie masquerading as an adventure, but it does the adventure stuff really, really well. And I think sort of by playing off her being an author, I think there's kind of a wink and a nod to Hey, see how many cliches we're we're using? It's like a romance novel, and I think it really uh, it kind of gets away with it partially because it, it does that. Yeah, uh, well, that's pretty similar to mine, which is self aware ride. We didn't coordinate it, this. It's good <laughs> because I mean, it really does. I mean, in some ways, kind of feel like an amusement park ride, like you were saying, like just boom, 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 which is very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I would feel I, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is more so like that. But just the fact that it is very self-aware, and I think that's something that people don't really give Robert Zemeckis credit for because they're like, oh my gosh, he's just like this super sappy director who, you know, and they just think of like 
Forrest Gump, which also I think Forrest Gump is more of a criticism than people realize and instead of being like the boomer hit. But I think that he's fully aware of like the tropes that he's playing with and kind of undoing them and making fun of them in a lot of ways and making fun of just the genre itself in some ways, even though it has been newly reminted because of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so in some ways it's commenting more so on like older adventure films, but also in the packaging of the new adventure film. Yeah, it's that is Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what it is for me is part of it's just it's an 80s movie. So this is how they made movies. But yeah, there's clearly like a an aesthetic and, and a presentation that's inspired by Indiana Jones. Because yeah, that was taking the old adventure movies, but redoing them and, and, and refreshing them. And it really definitely uses that. But the core is not an Indiana Jones movie or an adventure. It's, it's a parody of, of romance and adventure. Before we get into our main discussion, I'm just going to give a little brief now in film history for the backstory of this film. So Michael Douglas at the late 70s was kind of an up-and-coming actor. Of course, he was the son of Kirk Douglas, so he was already born Hollywood royalty and kind of had an in from that. He signed a contract with a studio back in the 70s, and in 1979, Diane Thomas wrote the screenplay for this film, and he heard about it, and it was one of those just huge, super hot screenplays. And so he bought the rights for it for $250,000 and told the studio, okay, I want to do this, and I want to produce this, I want this to be our movie, and he just really struggled with finding both a lead male and female actor, and so the studio was like, this is too much work, it's not going to happen, and so they show up the project. Then a couple years later, his contract runs out with them, and he moves on and signs a contract with 20th Century Fox, and he's like, I still really want to do Romancing the Stone, and they're like, great, because Raiders of the Lost Ark was a huge hit, one of the highest grossing films of all time. We want to do our own Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, yes, you can make this movie. And so he is still shopping around for a female lead, finally bumps into Kathleen Turner and like, yep, okay, that's that's her. And they're still really struggling to find a male lead. And so at that point, the studio is like, okay, you're just going to have to be the male lead. And so he takes on the project and they hire on Robert Zemeckis because they're like, well, if we want to make this Indiana Jones-like might as well use Spielberg's apprentice, who at the time was Robert Zemeckis. And one of the weird, interesting IMDb trivia facts, which I'm always like, I don't know if this is actually anything real or not, but they're like, one of the reasons why Michael Douglas was drawn to this role was because when he was with his dad on the set of Spartacus, he got really into rock climbing. And so the fact that there was a scene where he could do some rock climbing <laughs> really interested him for this, which sounds like one of those stupid, like, IMDb things that someone's just like piecing that together. I mean, who knows? I bet Michael Douglas does love rock climbing. Did that make him want to make this movie? Probably not. James Cameron did a whole has made a whole career after figuring out a way to have an excuse to go swimming. Go underwater. Go underwater. So, <laughs> I mean, I want that to be true. That's true. But yeah, let's kind of dig in just starting off with this whole debate of retelling or ripoff. Because yeah, like you were saying, this is a very different movie from Raiders of the Lost Ark and even some of the other subsequent Indiana Jones films. In some ways, I almost feel like the closest Indiana Jones film to this is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because of like the added schlockiness, kind of focusing a little bit more on a romance and having those quieter moments because there really isn't a whole lot of that in Raiders. I mean, every time I watch Raiders, I'm just like, this is such a jam-packed movie. Like, it is insane how much they're able to pull off in that short of a time. 
like I get to the part whenever he gets into the submarine and I'm like, yeah, there's got to be like an hour left. And it's like 20 minutes of him being at the base until the very end of the movie. It's just absolutely crazy how fast paced it is. And it is set piece after set piece after set piece. And all of it flows together perfectly. And it is great. And it is one of the most well structured films of all time. Like it's just absolutely insane how well that movie flows. And I think if anything with I mean, I love the original Indiana Jones trilogy, but I think if anything that they kind of lack from the first one is that tight knit fast pacedness, especially Temple of Doom, which I feel like really takes its time, which I mean, if you've listened to our episode, you know, our thoughts on Temple of Doom and you know how much John and I love this and even kind of prefer Indiana Jones to Star Wars. There's something about it that is just so absolutely captivating and romancing the stone kind of gets it but also kind of not like whenever this is my second time watching this and i watched romancing the stone for the first time a couple years ago and i remember thinking afterwards i'm like that was very different than i thought it would be because i'd always heard like it's like exactly like indiana jones and da 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 and i was like not really i mean yes there it's more like stylistically like it but less structurally like it because this is so much I know I said it was a ride. That doesn't mean everything is fast paced, but just that there is like a flow to it and like the ups and downs and, you know, the kind of lulls to bring you back up to it where I feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark is just one long corkscrew where it's just like heart pounding the entire time where this is like a wooden roller coaster. I think that's unfair to wooden roller coasters, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't really get going the, the uh, trying to find the treasure in earnest until halfway through. And when mm-hmm. they find that, when they find the, um, it's thing, it's more just things happening to them. There's not a, a good driving force other than, oh, we're getting chased. We have to run. And then this thing happens, which honestly it makes for, it's less of a strong movie than, than Raiders, obviously, but it's still fun. And I think, uh, because it's not, it's mainly a romance. That's, I think what we have to talk about, whether this movie's effective or not, because the adventure part is sort of just background or the 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 wallpaper, you know, it's the, it's the theming of the movie. I guess that's a good question. Do you think the romance works? So the first time I watched it, I thought no. I was like, why the heck is she with this guy? I don't know if it's because I knew the film and was more familiar with it, but it was a little bit more effective for me the second time around. I mean, the first time, again, I was like expecting a bit more uh Stoicism is the wrong word for Michael Douglas's character, but just kind of more of that like adventure hero kind of charm, which I don't really think he has. That's what's so great about it, though, right? I think, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I'm just saying, yeah, that I was expecting that. I was expecting like a traditional adventure hero where maybe there's not like a whole lot of background, but there's just like a suave to it, which he does not have at all. Well, Which that, is the joke. I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, the introduction scene is great because he comes in like a swashbuckling hero, right? He shoots, but it's sort of like a parody of it where it's like, yeah, he's shooting the gun a lot and doesn't really care if she's okay. He's just trying to kill this guy, right? But even then, like, he's he's being heroic. And then and then he's just like, I lost my birds. Like, he doesn't, he's just a guy. Like, he's the type of guy that would do that, right, in the middle of the forest and just start shooting a shotgun. He's not a well-adjusted person. <laughs> so like you kind of see like yeah he's he's what you would get if you know, that that fantasy of that type of person is ridiculous and and he's kind of a a loner and a weird and a little bit of a weirdo or like just apathetic to other people you know 
and it's great. Like he doesn't come across like a jerk, but he's borderline a jerk, acting jerkish to her because he's like, "Why would I help you?" Right? And uh, there's that scene where she's basically telling him that he's not a real man based on how she would write a man, basically. But um, he grows into that by the end, right? He 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 goes back with the stone. You know, he doesn't have to help her at the end, but he does. But yeah, it's it is great how not tradition not heroic he is at the beginning yeah well even just like the great mirroring of that introduction to his character of going back to like the western at the beginning whenever she's like yeah being chased by the brothers and he's and i mean it's the exact same framing where he's off in the distance up on a hill fires three shots and you just cut back to them and they're just dropping off the horses and then with this he's just firing like crazy (laughs) and like not hitting anything or like anything like that and then finally comes down and you're you're right he's just like my birds like what happened to my birds in my truck and finds her he's like oh what are you doing here all right see ya you know (laughs) like taking you know flying by picking her up on the horse and like taking her off into the sunset like the book i mean it's just like like, jesse that is just so great yeah did uh did Claire watch this with you? She watched bits and pieces of okay. it. She was kind of falling asleep throughout it. But I'm curious because I, I, I watched it later at night. Then because I don't think this is a particularly well written woman, but it's not awful. Like I mean, I'm not holding this movie to a hugely high standard, but she kind of falls in love with him by default because he saves her so many times. You know, he yeah. that's the great line of like he's not listening because he's looking at a snake and then he kills it and then he cooks it. Right? He's very like pragmatic. Like yeah. He can protect you, but he's not being suave at all. He's just like, I'm killing a snake because it's dangerous, and now we can eat it. Like, he's very practical. And then he kind of just magically figures out how to seduce her at the village, which is like a complete 180. And I think initially is him trying to get the map, obviously, right? He's he's putting yeah. the charm on to try and distract her, but... um even though it kind of the story kind of pivots at that the scene in the vill in the town, it's still great. I think that's where it got me a little bit more was like, again, not the suaveness, but some of the charm. Like in in yeah. in the town scene, like whenever they're dancing together, I was like, oh, well, I mean, you know, that's like, not I'm not saying like sweet or that sort of thing, but just like I mean, that's I think that's one of the things that gets her to fall in love because the first time I watched through, I was like, wow, she seems like a very flat character, but then watching through it this time, I noticed some more just dimensionality because again like flatness being attributed to she just kind of falls in love with him by default because he's the male lead but i do think there's a little bit more tact in it it's because he has built up this character of like i don't care about you i just care about my money and i just want to get the money and like that's it and then like whenever he kind of has like those like softer moments of vulnerability i think that's what maybe lets her guard down and i don't think she really even like truly falls for him till the end of the movie because even though they slept together i don't think that was like oh my gosh i'm like in love with him i think it's the decision that he decides to come back and actually go there that that's i just realized she did, i mean I, how does he get money to buy all that stuff for her the the dress and the he probably just cashes some of the check the the traveler's check oh it's a traveler's check gave him. you can mm-hmm. tr- cash a traveler's check in a small village in Colombia, maybe who knows? I don't know. Well, they they have a Xerox machine, so maybe they have a Xerox machine. That's how that's how you know nobody ever uses the Xerox machine in this, right? Yeah, I I feel like that has to be a deleted scene or yeah. something because yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, there's so much about that, and he's like, oh, and like you even see him stealing the map, 
but he doesn't do anything with but it. But then they go, yeah, they get chased out of the town, and then they go find the, the stone. Which, where'd the stone come from? There's a lot of stuff like that where it's like, a real adventure movie would be spending a lot of time at exposition of like, let's bring in, let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant for a little bit, and like really build up this mystery, and this is just a MacGuffin through and through. It's just a thing to get them going, but by the end, the... the uh, the climax, or not the climax, but like the the what would be the, the finding the treasure is so anticlimactic where it's like it's in a bunny. So it's clearly like not an ancient. Somebody hid it there. Why'd they hide it? You know, it's just like it's very silly. I think that it's good that they don't like there's a line there where she's like, in one of my books, I would have done this. Right. But they don't point it out too much that like how near um, sort of cheesy novel some of these plot points are like it just sort of is the way the movie's written which is great versus constantly being like this is like this which if i remember the lost city did that a lot of that where it was like this is like a book it's like cool we get it like you don't have to point everything out thanks yeah well i feel like that's where the main difference comes in and is hard to like say that this is a ripoff of indiana jones is because indiana jones is trying to be an old adventure serial it is very directly Taking from that, taking plot points, taking settings, taking just all of those different elements. Whereas this is trying to be a romance novel from start to pulp, finish. They're I mean, both pulp, really but they're different kinds of pulp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But stylized like almost exactly the same, which is the interesting part of it. Because like you were saying, the adventure is secondary, which is how, I mean, I've never really read romance novels, but I just know just from hearing and, you know, people talking about it. That that's how it is. The romance is the first part and whatever is like the hook of the story is the secondary action. It just kind of goes on in the background, which is very much like how this is. And I really like the point that you made earlier because I've been trying to dissect like why do none of these other films scratch the itch that Indiana Jones does? Because there's just something about the original trilogy that I just have never seen completely replicated by any other film. Perfectly, at least. One of the big things is what you were saying is that in a lot of these other ones, stuff happens to the main characters instead of them pursuing it. Because that's the thing with Indiana Jones is like he's always like on a mission for something. And yes, stuff still does happen to him to drag him into whatever scenario, but that he is so motivated and is like the propelling force throughout it, not just kind of running away from the main action. Well, this is a kissing movie. <laughs> like, like that's what's interesting. It's like the Indiana Jones-ness of it is almost like a time and place thing. Like a, like a, hey, this is a big hit. Let's get the underling of Spielberg to come direct this. And he is sort of knowingly, I think, it feels more like an Indiana Jones movie than it should. I said the kissing movie joke is like, this is the type of story that Princess Bride is, right? A, primarily a romance in Princess Bride, you're telling that story to the type of kid that would be Indiana, Indiana Jones, right? That movie works because it's like, actually, that this is still a wonderful story and he ends up being invested. There is a difference between written for a 12-year-old boy that doesn't want, you don't want the romance, you don't want, you know, maybe you get the girl, but it's like in an abstract sense, it's not like a, the romance is not that important at all. And this is not that. So the 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 way he makes it like Indiana Jones is kind of weird. And so it's yeah, it sticks. Same thing happened to me. Like I wa I remember now that when I watched first watch, I was like, this isn't like Indiana Jones that much. But then I forgot because it it's visually sticks in that same part of your brain that Indiana Jones does. I almost feels like it's a it's a necessity of studio meddling. I don't know if that's true 
But yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. I feel like I'm, you know, 99% positive that the only reason why this feels like Indiana Jones is because of studio notes and because they said, yes, we want to have our own Indiana Jones because the initial stories are so completely different and really just the main, if you look at story elements, the main similarities is that there's a lost treasure somewhere and a man and a woman have to go and find it and they're pursued by forces who want to take it from them. That's structurally really about the only similarities. But if you watch the movie, and because if you do any sort of like looking into this film, like on Wikipedia, on IMDb or anything like that, there's always a thing that is said, like, people always say that this is a ripoff of Indiana Jones, but the script was actually written in 1979 before Indiana Jones came out. So that means it's not a ripoff. And I'm like, okay, so the initial story can be made then, but stylistically, the way the movie is directed, is shot is made to be like Indiana Jones. Yes, story-wise, you can say that this film isn't a ripoff because technically it was kind of written first, but that doesn't mean that there's no semblance of it whatsoever because, like you said, it's all the studios saying we want this to be our Indiana Jones, even with them having sequels in mind for it and the way that they pick certain locations, the way that they costume their characters, the way that they shoot it, the lighting, the staging, like all of that. I guarantee you they brought in Zemeckis and were like, just do what Spielberg did. You've worked around him so much. You've gotten so much advice for him. Just do what he does. And for the beginning quarter of the film, I mean, he almost like completely mimics stuff aside from the New York City stuff, because that is like just completely outside of anything Indiana Jones but even just the way that he introduces characters, I mean, okay, I'll take that back because there are elements in New York City whenever he is introducing like the undercover cop guy from Columbia, that is like exactly how Spielberg introduces the characters. It's like you just see kind of like one element in them in the majority of the frame and you're like, oh, is this like a hero? Is this a villain? And then like the first full shot of him, the face being completely covered in shadow and like the mysterious killing, it's all completely Spielbergian. And there's so much of so many different elements of that. And I think he even tries to do the one thing, which is interesting because I feel like at that point, Spielberg wasn't really known for his one but Raiders has just some of the best. I mean, just watching it, I was blown away. Even just super simple things like the whenever Indy is fighting the guy on the plane, the explosion goes off and it cuts to the Nazi camp. It's Belloc and Dietrich and the camera tracks along with Belloc and moves back and forth and then looks up at the explosion and then back and then moves and like, oh my gosh, it's just amazing. And it's like, that didn't have to be one, one entire scene. And Zemeckis doesn't fully do that because there are moments where I'm like, I could totally see that this would be a point where there would be a Spielberg winner. And, you know, he cuts it up a bit because, you know, again, like the Spielberg style wasn't as much established back then. But I mean, I think he does a great job in that. Well, here's what's interesting to me is that Maybe I'm hijacking this episode a little bit, but it almost feels like there's more ripoffs of this movie than there are direct ripoffs of Indiana Jones. Obviously, Indiana Jones has had a huge impact on a lot of different action movies, but there's not a lot of direct adventure films like Uncharted and Tomb Raider are both adaptations. Like, there's more video game ripoffs that then became movies versus like direct attempts to do this. But I can think of two very, very close ripoffs of this movie. I would say ripoffs: Six Days and Seven Nights and The Lost City are both very much like this, like very directly like this. And it's weird because, I don't know, maybe this is easier to copy the writer. You know, it's it's more cliche than Indiana Jones is, strangely. 
What do you think that's about? Okay, I was going to say the exact same thing, where I completely agree with you that most adventure films rip off Romancing the Stone, but say, oh, we were really inspired by Indiana Jones. And I think it's like you were saying that it's just like an impossible task to replicate this. And that even the guy who was Spielberg's ward, who was instructed by him, who was, you know, all of these different things, like he could get elements of it, but he couldn't quite get there. And I don't again, I don't think he was trying to make Indiana Jones. But given what the studio told him of like, do it as close to the chest as you can. There's still stuff that it's like it, it, Spielberg just thinks about it differently. A lot of people critique him and say, like, you know, he's just kind of like a family popcorn director, which I think is like a really glib treatment of him, because I honestly think he's just one of the most ingenious filmmakers of all time. I mean, it's kind of crazy how much of this series has just been about Spielberg, because we did like starting off E.T. and Super 8, Jaws and House, you know, now this. So, I mean, again, it just shows like how influential he is. But like we were talking about in our Super 8 episode, that the best directed scenes in Super 8 were the scenes where Spielberg was on set and you can tell like, oh, that was his direction. Like whenever JJ was like, what should I do for this? He was like, oh, well, this is how you should frame the the gas station attack scene, you know, and it's the most effective part of the movie. If the studio came up and said, we are going to completely reboot and remake Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here you go. I'd poop my pants on the spot. You know, like, I just like, I wouldn't know what to do if they were like, remake Romancing the Stone. I'm like, okay, that's going to be hard, but it seems manageable. I'm very interested how Dial of Destiny turns out because on one hand, everything I've heard about it sounds terrible and I am not excited for it. I don't actually think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but the, uh, the Skinner rule of inverse trailer quality, proportionality, something like that is nowadays, I think the better a trailer is, the worse the movie is. Better better meaning like it shows you a lot of things and it, it feels almost like what you want the movie to feel like. Doesn't really pique your interest with mystery, but just kind of plays the beats, leads to a worse movie. Whereas a movie that, or whoever's making the trailer, I think they have there's a sense that the movie's going to be good and then you can kind of not show your cards as much. Those Worst trailers that don't show a lot tend to be better movies now, which is so strange. The trailer for Indiana Jones seems like a lot of fun, so I think it's going to be terrible. But the director, I looked up James Mangold, and I didn't realize how many movies he's touched that I love, like really legitimately love. I haven't like clicked in my mind yet that all these movies are in a series and associated with one guy, but like Ford versus Ferrari is really good. Like I just rewatched it recently. After watching Air, which I know we don't do in theater reviews on this podcast, but my review of Air is it's uh, it's Ford versus Ferrari for business meetings. <laughs> so not as exciting. It's got to be good, right? But I don't know how. You know, that's going to be the closest thing we've seen to telling someone go do Indiana Jones. We've done it with Jurassic Park, and it was financially successful. <laughs> We've done it with Star Wars. We've done it with a lot of these classic 80s movies have been remake, remade, but not Indiana Jones yet. They made the first three and then nothing else. <laughs> and then no, no one did anything else. Certainly, they didn't make a fourth movie and it certainly wasn't, in, Spielberg was not involved with that either. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because it's like, it's weirdly omnipresent in our, in our movie pop culture and yet unreplicatable and... People haven't tried the direct inspiration as much as as you'd think. 
So now we'll sort of see what indie is trying to go back because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It, one of its problems was that it tried to like move on in genre. It tried to move on to sci-fi, and it's like don't know. Like <laughs> like that's not what people want. You know, it's good to be transformative and and move on your character, move your characters on, but it didn't work because there's something missing. The adventure was missing. The the number of things happening in the movie is essential, I think, to an adventure movie. Like you have to be that roller coaster is important. This movie slows down sometimes, but the, just the number of set pieces is, is great. Whereas uh, Lost City, for example, doesn't do a lot of actual things. All the movies I mentioned, Six Days, Seven Nights, doesn't do a lot of things. Not a lot of things are happening, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, we were talking off mic beforehand that maybe this should have been Romancing the Stone and Lost City because I hadn't seen Lost City before. I was literally watching it right before I got on. I think they even said at some point they were going to call it like a remake of Romancing the Stone because of how close and how similar it is. Actually, I'm going to look it up. I want to see if they give Diane Thomas a writer's credit because there's some scenes that I'm like, this is 100% stolen from Romancing the Stone. I think a lot of people get away with it because they're like, oh my gosh, I was so inspired by it. Here's a scene where we paid homage to it. But in some ways, I kind of feel like that's a cheap way out. Okay, no, they didn't give her a screen credit or anything like that. The whole them dancing in the small village, that is like exactly the same. And the fact that that's the moment where, again, they they start like more falling for each other and all that is just... Even though a lot of the plot points are super contrived in this, it feels like an adventure and it feels like you're traveling. And something about the Lost City, it feels like you're trapped on an island. It doesn't feel... Like they're journeying somewhere. It doesn't have that magic, you know? Uh, and then they show up the village and it's like, why are they acting this way? And it's like, yeah, because they, ha- they had to do the thing from the movie that they were ripping off, right? But that that would be even more of a slam dunk, I think, ripoff. So that probably would be a less interesting conversation. Six Days and Seven Nights and Lost City actually both have the same problem, I think, compared to this, which is, I think you can make an argument this is a good romance. Even if it's a schlocky pulpy romance it they have better chemistry as the movie goes on whereas both of those other movies actually have a problem where their their comedic chemistry is better six days and seven nights their comedic chemistry is amazing they're really funny and then they fall in love and it doesn't make any sense like it doesn't it just doesn't work lost city is the same way where it's like channing tatum is really funny in that at the beginning like it's very silly that's different than this where he's genuinely hilarious but then the romance doesn't actually work the relationship is funnier at the beginning, but then it, it doesn't, it's not believable by the end. And then the adventure isn't as good. And, and things just don't happen. This movie is smart enough. Zemeckis was smart enough to not be like, I need to explain all these things and make you understand. And he kind of just zooms past a lot of ex- things where other movies would do exposition to just do the stuff, to do the adventure, get her in the jungle as quickly as possible with as few scenes to explain why she's going as possible to just get there and do the hijinks and do the the travel get the, get them together yeah. and traveling and going to these different locations and going through these different uh set pieces as quickly as possible instead of slowing it down to explain which those other two movies do or those other two movies take a lot of time setting things up and it's just dumb it doesn't work it doesn't matter who cares right yeah talking about like kind of adaptation or people trying to replicate it The whole thing and the whole reason why the Indiana Jones movies work is because of the mentality that Lucas and Spielberg had, where they said, what if we made a movie that was only the good parts of a movie? 
And that's why it's so smooth, it's so streamlined, because they don't worry about getting bogged down with some of those things. Like, even the fact that somehow Indy is able to hang on to a submarine and that it doesn't go underwater or, like, anything like that. And you get it in the rules of the world. And, like, yes, there is the exposition scene at the beginning, but even in that, there's so much craft and there's so much, like, mystery to it and I mean, you just can't beat the John Williams Ark of the Covenant score that plays all that. Like, I mean, I just get goosebumps every time that scene happens because there is this gravitas that's held to it. Like you're saying with like Lost City, I mean, just because it's such a fresh thing for me, where all of the exposition scenes, it's very dry where it's like, you knew about this, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I used to, my husband used to write about it and like, and it's just like, yeah, it's kind of dull. It's like, yeah, I already know that. And you can tell that they're, they're using the exposition there's no emotion which is bizarre yeah there's no emotion with that yeah yeah because even that the arc exposition scene there's like there's subtle comedy that's in it of like the arc it turns people pillars into salt ain't you ever been to sunday school yeah, before sunday you know school, like yeah all of those different like little quips that go into it and yet there's still like this fear of the unknown because i feel like a lot of these other exposition things like i mean and it's harder with something like a jewel where it's like yeah a rich emperor had it there's not yeah. much you can do with that. But with the arc where they're like, we don't know what it does. Well, that's that's what a good point. Uh, if we look at, you know, it's strange. It, it's Tomb Raider and Uncharted video game series that are the the only real attempts to do this. Get that there's a some sort of supernatural element that's needed. And you have the cynic and the skeptic at the beginning. And by the end, they they believe in the magic of the of the of the treasure or the whatever it is. Uncharted, I will say, did one time subverted that and said it was he dreamed it and it was worse it was the worst of the series because they they were afraid of that i think most of the time you need the supernatural or something something really beyond your experience that really stuns even the the adventurer that's seen everything and there's none none of that i mean it's like hey there's a jewel that looks like a piece of fight you know, a piece of plastic that's been put inside a bunny and it's like it's fun and it's jokey and it works in this but when other people have tried to do that it's just boring yeah this is like the middle ground between like more common romance or common adventure and the like indiana jones super over the top it's the only play only movie that sort of sits there and, and succeed and i think it's zemeckis's skill maybe we need to talk about zemeckis's career because yeah because what a what a roller coaster he's had of all the new hollywood directors and then maybe the next generation after that that made all these hit movies in the 70s and 80s, he has maybe the strangest downfall <laughs> of anyone, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is hit after hit, really, like, a lot. He's, like, the ultimate, like, wow, look at all the movies he's made. All those are such good movies. Castaway, right? Like, movies that don't, like, dominate the conscious, other than Back to the Future, don't really, and... and Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, yeah. Don't really dominate the the cultural me- memory as much, but... But you, st- they still feel like, oh yeah, that was a great movie. That was a really good movie. And Castaway did dominate too, as well. But like, and then he just stopped. He just like decided, ooh, I really like motion capture, and spent a two decades <laughs> doing that for no reason. And did not, not a single movie, like a, not a single good, really good movie came out of that. He just got distracted by his toys, which is <laughs> maybe Lucas did that too. Yeah. I hate Polar Express, but I feel like that is another one that has cultural mainstay just because it's a Christmas classic, like kind of by default. 
But even as a kid, I remember seeing that in theaters and I was like, I don't like this. I feel like I was just the right target audience, especially because I was I grew up in California, so we didn't have snow. We didn't ha- and so like I was a sucker for Christmas movies because, you know, it would be like 60 degrees on December 25th and I'm like this is, doesn't feel like Christmas. So I would love those movies, those Christmas movies where it's just tons of snow, you just buckets and buckets and like, you know, it, it's just living up, living in that season. And Polar Express, I was just like I just don't like this. I think that it's, was it was never something that compelling to me. I argue it's not in the Christmas canon because it everyone's reaction was that. Yeah. It's too creepy. He tried something great and then he kept doing that over and over. He has I mean Flight is I can't think of other movies he's done since that weren't in some way weird motion capture stuff. Oh, Flight and Allied and But those oh, are I got to look it up now. It's sad. Yeah, those are not the like, same level. Like it's serious movies. Yeah, or like his his not his series movies. This is adult movies. His adult movies, but still, like he can't get back to that magic. Witches, I, I haven't seen witches, so I don't know if there's anything. The walk, okay. So the walk is good. Yeah, I I was about to say I kind of love the walk. I mean, just that the the walk sequence is one of the best moments on film in the last like ten Even years. The, like it the, is the crash astonishing. and flight. The crash and flight is spectacular. It's just that the rest of the movie mm. can't hold a candle to. Yeah, he's a great director, and he's been wasted for so long. I don't know. This is sort of, I mean, this is his breakout hit, right? Yeah, this is what gets him back to the future. Because of the success of this, he was like, I've always wanted to make this time travel movie. He gets to make it because Romancing the Stone is a hit. And then people kind of forget that he did this because they know him for Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. Um, But again, I feel like Romancing the Stone is like kind of one of those like subtle classics. Like it's not quite on like maybe the cultural level of something like it's the, the classic day off or the type of classic or... that people us young don't know about <laughs> like people that live through it know about it then it then it gives you real 80s kid cred by knowing about it yeah you're like oh that's the store that's in all those malls that has like the salt crystal lamps and that sort of thing isn't isn't that what it's called? Isn't there a store called Romancing the Stone? I feel like they were in like every oh, I have single no, mall. I, I was a, it's, like, it's like a lot of like new age. That was a courtesy chuckle. I have no idea what it. you're talking about. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Well, thanks. I appreciate your courtesy chuckle. <laughs> but, uh, but okay, here's one of my other points too that I feel like is so weird where I feel like Zemeckis is kind of the king of family movies of making a family movie that everyone can enjoy or at least like quote unquote family movies that are just always shown all the time that are way more risque than you actually remember them being. You know, there's just like household classics, like maybe not movies centered toward kids, but like just classic PG rated movies. You you see like the, the DVD in every parent's home sort of thing, but there's scenes in them where you're like, wow, this is, this is in like Forrest Gump, the, the whole scene with the principal at the beginning and like the bedroom scene with the blanket, this movie, like the sex scene in this, I'm like, this is way more extreme than like you just see a lot more than I actually remember you seeing. PG, PG, man, it's PG and PG. I mean, pushing that. Well, the other crazy thing that Temple of Doom came out this year is also just absolutely crazy. And then yeah, you know, it gets it's a PG, it's a PG thirteen movie. On, so, yeah. It's a PG thirteen movie oh, before definitely before yeah. It's this just weirdness of the line was in a different spot and he goes right up to it. Yeah, the attempted rape scene in Back to the Future. 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like all the the Jessica Rabbit stuff. There's just like all of these movies that, you know, again, are just like these like kind of family classics that have these way more extreme moments than you remember being in them. Even the hand getting ripped off. I'm like, wow, that's more gory than it. Because I'm like, I think his hand gets bitten off by a crocodile. Is it a, I mean, I think it's an alligator actually. But yeah, I'm like, geez, you know, just that they hold on it for so long of like just kind of the the shreds and the blood pouring out. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we're, we're firmly in not, 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 or it's a retelling, right? It's a retelling. It's not yeah. a rip off. Yeah. Hollywood, our message to Hollywood doing it. is Hollywood, make more adventure movies and get better at it because you really lost your, there's not the institutional knowledge. You got to do it more. We can't be so reliant on uh, Jungle Cruise. Yeah. Okay. So here's my other question. What do you think Zemeckis' career would look like now? Because after this, they immediately offer him, like, do the sequel, Jewel of the Nile. And he says, no, I want to do Back to the Future. What do you think his career would have looked like if he said, okay, I'll just do this and just keep on making these Romancing the Stone movies? I have no idea. Do we know, like, is he good at turning them around? Because they came out the next year, right? So it's kind of a crazy, back then they would do these crazy quick turnaround sequels. And they did that with two and three of Back to the Future. And they're good, but not great because they, they rushed him out. So I wonder if there's all these movies, like, would we get, we wouldn't get Forrest Gump. Mm-mm. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Maybe Back to the Future would have been made later because I bet Jewel would have been a bigger hit if he had directed it. Um, I haven't seen Jewel of the Nile, but I've heard it's not great. Yeah, why would they go get another treasure? They got he got his boat. You know, what's the inciting yeah. incident in that? There's all these um, butterfly moments of these magical, these crazy, a bunch of different things that had to happen for Who Framed Roger Rabbit to happen. And so that answer is we don't get Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which would be a travesty because that movie is amazing i can't believe it exists i still can't believe it exists he and spielberg had the sway to get all those characters that doesn't happen we probably get a thief in the cobbler finish maybe i don't know about that yeah because so roger rabbit comes out 1988 when when did thief in the cobbler actually get like the broken release was that that was 90s early 90s, 90s. yeah so this is this is my thinking right i, well, I love i this. just i turned exactly to my notes page on the thief in the cover sorry that was crazy 1993 i uh, here's my argument is that he doesn't get that big break williams doesn't get that big break and so he does he just to keep plugging along bit by bit and i think he spends the 90s working on it and no one, no one gives him a big contract, right? That's why he got all that money after Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That was the whole deal. And then he couldn't finish it because he was going to spend whatever money people gave him and he's going to keep going, right? And so he but wouldn't have... I think it's the opposite of that, though, because I think he uses a lot of Roger Rabbit money to help make Thief and the Cobbler because That's it's such saying. an expensive he, process. Yeah. Yes, but, but, but he, that money gets tied to something, whereas... It would have been what it was before, which is slow, methodical, bit by bit. This is why I'm saying it gets made. You might even get to the internet age with that movie unfinished, and then people would have lost their freaking minds for this movie and crowdfunded it or whatever. Like, it would have been something that eventually people found out that this guy is doing this. Now, it might have taken longer because he didn't do Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? So he's not as famous, but 
I think there's more likely that we actually get the movie finished because it would have taken decades more, but no one no one would have given him money that they can then own him and take it away from him. It was it was it would have been his project and he would have taken as long as it needed to get it done. So so here's my argument against that for that like coming out crowdsourced in the internet age. One, if you went up to a random person on the street and says, Can you name a Richard Williams movie? They would be like, Who the heck is that? Even just thinking, I mean, because he directed very few movies. A lot of his stuff was he was just am- animating it, and he's just one of the greatest animators of all time. So my big opposition to that is he doesn't have, like, the the archive of stuff that is just absolutely beloved. And here's my, my real negation to it. Don Bluth. Don Bluth, who is also one of the most famous animators of all time, more people have heard about him. You could say... American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Land Before Time, you know, like some of the most classic non-Disney movies. And he has been trying to crowdfund this Dragon's Lair movie, which again, you'd think like Don Bluth, Dragon's Lair, sounds like the perfect combination for a hand-drawn animated movie. And he still cannot get that thing made. So that's my argument against that. But, But that's what I'm saying is he's waiting to get funding to make it. Roger Williams was just making the movie through sheer volume of work, right? And so I'm just thinking another two de- another decade or two of him doing what he was doing before, what would that movie look like? Would it be in a finishable state? I have no idea, but maybe. That's a fun thread to pull, I think. Here's an interesting opposite remake. Okay, so if imagine if a studio was like, okay, this is a cult hit, we would kind of want to make another cult hit 2D animated version of this, but it has to be cheaper. So let's hire Gendy Tartakovsky to make a remake of it. Of? Of Thief and the Cobbler. Oh. Because in a lot of ways, he's like the opposite of Richard Williams. I mean, he, a master animator, knows exactly what he's doing. But whereas Williams was animating on ones, Gendy Tartakovsky in his 2D animation has like, you know, very sparse moments where you know they just hold and like nothing moves for a while so it's cheaper that way could actually get made and he has like a little bit more like blockier movements and that's like part of his style yeah but it'll never get made because no it's so intimately tied with him his soul and he reject he didn't want to do it after it t- got taken away from him he never wanted to go back and fix it or anything like that yeah there are two different types of genius one is the the slow contemplative quiet master and one is the like we talked about the kind of genius that is the tragedy of it's being that level of creativity being consigned to a lifetime to one lifetime is as a tragedy right it's it's uh he needs multiple lifetimes of people to to finish his work and uh if the movie hadn't gotten taken away from him i think maybe he passes away and then there's this unfinished work and instead of it being something that everyone knows he doesn't he didn't want it finished or he didn't want it redone it would have been something that people finished. It would have been his uh, Sagrada Familia, you know. They got all these sketches and then take another 100 years to finish it. I don't know. All because of the romancing the stone. All because of, of Zemeckis. Not yeah, how did we get on this, this topic? This is, I don't know. That was great. <laughs> we just changed history. Okay, here. I'm going to put a pin in a different, another episode I want to do in the future because I've really been getting in this into this and... It's kind of a terrible subgenre, but like 90s slash early 2000s wannabe Hitchcock movies. Like Psycho? They kind of, 
Yeah, no, of course we'd have to cover that. You know, that's such a fascinating movie. But I mean, something that it really starts off with like Sixth Sense, you know, I mean, that's one of the the big sorts of things where people are like wanting to do this more thriller version. And I think that Robert Zemeckis has one of the best ones in What Lies Beneath in what I think is kind of his underrated masterpiece. I know a lot of people kind of scoff at it. And yes, there's a lot of boring parts of it. One, I think it is his most gorgeously shot movie with just absolutely incredible cinematography, but also has just his most chilling sequence in film. It's fascinating. So I want to throw that out there for a future miniseries because there's also a bunch of terrible movies in there like Disturbia, you know, which sucks. I hate it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> Man, he, I'm sorry. I'm looking through his movies. Uh, he, pro- <laughs> he produced Mars Needs Moms. Yeah. It's the mocap thing. I know. What the heck? I miss when Disney uh, was incompetent. I do. I, 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 who went on and on about how much I appreciated the competence of Marvel, Marvel now miss the days when Disney could flop, and now we're just stuck in the cycle of No, they're getting... A strange World flopped. I think Lightyear kind of flopped. Oh, no, I'm, I'm talking live action more, but yeah. yeah oh. Yeah. Still, I mean... I'm thinking like the weird, when they would do weird stuff and it would fail, John Carter, obviously, mm. what we've talked yeah. about, but like they they would do stuff and it would be bad or or it would be not a hit. And then now it's just turning out Thor Franchises. sequels that are mediocre and bad and we're all just stuck with Ride this. movies. <laughs> Ride movies. Yeah, I mean, all that Disney is doing in the live action setting, because again, if you, you know, people always think throughout history disney you know animated movies which yes that's you know usually their best content but they've been doing live action movies for a long time and that is something that people forget about and they have kurt a russell. huge catalog of live action films huh kurt russell kurt russell was, exactly. was was, was the boy uh, that wore tennis shoes or the computer those, that wore tennis shoes i mean walt disney's dying words were kurt russell is the future of the company yeah right and there's a lot of terrible ones, too. So, I mean, that's also the live-action legacy, is they just have a lot of really bad live-action It might be just movies. nostalgia, but it, it feels like, yeah, like, now they just bought their way to making money in everything they do. and mm-hmm. Yeah, because all they do now is Star Wars, Marvel, ride movies, and live-action remakes of Disney classics. And Pixar, yeah. And even Pixar well, I was is talking not... more live-action. Oh, sure, yeah. And it's like... yeah. Maybe we just turn this podcast into a complaining about Disney podcast, but it's fine. Uh, that Indiana Jones better be good. I'm just saying. Or I'm going to be mad. <laughs> Do you think it'll be at least better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Are you willing to hedge that no. bet on Mike? No. No. I, I, I think it could be a huge disaster based on everything I've heard other than the director who is competent. But Disney can make a good director bad with their meddling. So uh think... God, they didn't hire Chris Pratt to be a new... Do you remember that? When that was like the whole big thing that they were talking about? Gosh, that would have been so bad. Because yeah. people were like, he's the perfect he's the perfect Indiana Jones. And mm-mm. I think they just need to kind of retire it after. That's what they're doing. So it better go out with a bang. I mean, this is an amazing cast. I mean, I'm probably ruining it for myself right now. But Mads Mikkelsen, oh, love that man. Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Antonio Banderas, Toby Jones, John Rhys-Davies is coming back. Oh, here's a crazy thing. Do you know that Spielberg originally wanted Danny DeVito to play Sala? No, but that's perfect. I mean, yeah. 
I get it. I get it. He's Sala, and he's a weird Sala, and we didn't even talk about him in this movie. It's very yeah. strange. It's very strange. He's like the narrator, kind of. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. weird. Okay. I haven't seen Jewel of the Nile. You need to at least watch the trailer for Jewel of the Nile because it is Danny DeVito in the middle of a desert that runs into a phone box and is basically going over the plot of the movie while clips of the movie are being shown. And then he's like, okay, I got to call you back because like there's an army approaching and he leaves the phone booth. He's like, I got to go see it. And then turns to camera and is like, and you have to too. It's so weird. I need to see it now. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm he gonna, does I'll a lot send of ex- a link to it right after this. He does a lot of exposition in this, which is really interesting mm-hmm. over the phone. It's kind of great, but also... She's right yeah. here. She's right over there. She's in here. I'm still not sure what he's doing in the movie, but yeah, it's uh, it's quirky and fun. I don't know. Two thumbs up It looks from good us. in that suit. Okay, no comment. <laughs> the ga- What's the gang? The, uh, what does he say at the beginning? He's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And then it feels like the gang does whatever he says he doesn't want to do. The what? I'm just saying it's that. like a, it's a always sunny plot where he doesn't want to be there. Oh. And then he gets yeah. forced into this adventure. Yeah. Any other comments or should we go into trivia? Trivia. Question number one. So as we were talking about earlier that Michael Douglas had a really hard time casting the lead role of Jack Colt before he ended up taking the role himself. So, which one of these actors was not offered the role of Jack? A, Clint Eastwood, B, Burt Reynolds, C, Sylvester Stallone, or D, Mel Gibson? Burt Russell. Burt Reynolds? Burt Reynolds. (laughs) That's right. You got in my head. (laughs) Incorrect. My my last words. Uh, Yeah. It's who? Mel Gibson Mel was Gibson. not that offered. Feel- All of the others were offered it. That feels that but feels him. Uh, yeah, should have gotten that. Okay. So now that you said that, okay, that was one of my points. I think I mean, I like this movie. I think it would be better if Kurt Russell, like this is a role that is made for Kurt Russell. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He would be yeah, incredible no in this. No doubt. I wish they had reached out to him and I wish that he would have done it. Although he was probably in a John Carpenter movie this year, so that, I mean, would have been better anyway. You know so. who would have been good in this role? Who? His son, Chris Pratt. Oh, my gosh. I was like, who the heck is Kurt Russell's son? I thought you meant the kid from Sky High. No, Chris Pratt. That's no. his No. You're uh, okay, let's see. We what know was who your 19- favorite. Chris- you know he's not your favorite, Chris. Okay. Oh, he was in Swing Shift this year. He could have swapped that out for Romancing the Stone. Yeah, Kurt Russell yeah. would have been perfect. Gosh, he was but th- so there's good Michael Douglas had, brings a certain mediocrity. Sle- nah, I wouldn't quite. Yeah, a kind of like apathy to this. That's pretty great. Like it really is pretty great. But okay, imagine a combination of Kurt Russell's character in The Thing and Kurt Russell's character in Big Trouble in Little China, and that is the perfect Jack T. Colt. What I'm hearing is we need a re- remake of Romancing the Stone. Yeah, Kurt Russell's too old. I know, but there's this is good ideas with the Marvel technology. Yes, I mean, yeah, (laughs) make it both a sequel to this and we out (laughs) Tron. (laughs) This was not in Tron. I want you to imagine this movie with that soundtrack, and that would be fun. (laughs) Oh, I forgot to bring. I love this soundtrack. I'm gonna turn away from the mic because I'm gonna blow it out. 
That sax is sweet. Can you imagine Indiana Jones with this soundtrack? How much different of a movie that would be? <laughs> it was a kind of a sexless movie, right? Like it's it doesn't have the romance, and then have the saxophone all the time would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question number two. This is killing a Nazi, and there's a saxophone. Anyway, um, <clears throat> question number two. Screenwriter Diane Thomas tragically passed away shortly after this movie came out, and it was a very tragic car accident, and she had a long and promising screenwriting career ahead of her, and so much so that after writing this film, she was hired on by Steven Spielberg to help co-write one of his movies. So before her passing, which of these films did she co-write? A, The Color Purple, B, Always, C, Empire of the Sun, or D, The Last Crusade? A. Final answer. It's incorrect. It is always. And she was actually supposed to write the screenplay for The Last Crusade, but passed away before it was made. Okay. Question number three. Which of these is not the title of one of Joan Wilder's books in the movie? A. Heart of the Frontier. B. The Savage Secret. C. Love's Wicked Kiss. D. Treasures of Lust. E. Passion's Lovely Lie. C, final answer. Incorrect. It is A, Heart of the Frontier. Dang it. I'm, I'm losing badly. Okay, here's, I, I, got another, I got another question for you then. Okay. So this film was nominated for one Oscar. Which of these was it nominated for? A, editing, B, cinematography, C, sound design, or D, soundtrack? Sound design. Final answer? Cinematography, final answer. Incorrect. It. it is film editing. What? I don't think the editing's that good. No, it's not. I mean, that's why it was nominated. It didn't win. But this is a, a very well shot movie. It looks it's well gorgeous. Shot. Did you watch it on Apple TV Plus, like the remastered version? Yeah. It looks so good. Because I think I had watched it on Amazon Prime beforehand. I don't know if it was just like a non-remastered version, but man, this looked great. It should have been nominated for cinematography over editing, but mm -hmm. okay. So here is your challenge then. So as we were talking about beforehand that Robert Zemeckis was kind of Steven Spielberg's protege. So Spielberg produced six of his movies, and this is the first of his films that he didn't produce. Can you name the six that he did? Back to the Future, one, two, three. Yep. Now you got to name them out. Back to the Future. Back to the Future, part two. Back to the Future, part three. <laughs> yep. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Polar Express? Nope. Castaway? Nope. Nope. Okay. Forrest Gump? Mm-mm. Does he produce... Who Framed Roger Rabbit, obviously. Yep. In 1941, he Spielberg, Spielberg directed it, that, but were yeah. they weren't co-directors or anything, right? What he did he wrote, do? On he, that? he wrote him it. and Bob okay. Gale co-wrote it. Co-wrote it. Okay, I got four. Mm-hmm. Nothing recent. Nope. When's the last one? Roughly. The last one is 1980. Oh. I really hope you were paying attention when you were looking at his filmography. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a lyric or something, right? There is one that is hand. a lyric. Yep. I want to hold your hand. Yep, his first one. Mm. You got one more. Yeah. 
the next movie after that. Any guesses called, on? No. It actually has Kurt Russell in it. Uh, no chance. Used cars. Cheat, but, okay. That's a, that's, that's like the ultimate, like, if you didn't live in the 80s, you do not remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. And then I have another kind of bonus one on here that Zemeckis has had a bunch of other producers as well. There is one that is a standout in that Zemeckis has had a lot of other producers on his films. There is one film that has a notable producer who this is the only movie that he produced and is not known for being in the movie industry. Think about some of his other movies. Sonic the Hedgehog. Basically, no, there's kidding. Um, basically there's an odd man out in his list of producers where you wouldn't think of this person as a producer. A TV person. Yes. Who is a TV person? But also more than TV person. Plays. I'll let you look at his video games so you can so you can kind of get okay. an idea. I will say there are some really weird producers on The Witches. For some reason, Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro produced that movie, too. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it is? Beowulf. I'm no. sure. No. Okay. It is a movie that is based off of a book. I mean, Neil Gaiman did produce Beowulf, which is interesting. but I think that counts. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to look at all his producers. No, don't look at his producers. I'm not going to get it otherwise. It'd be more okay, satisfying look at, if I look at, look it at, No, 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 no. Look at the movies. Look at the movies. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah. of these is based off of a book? I know this is a movie you've seen. Is Forrest Gump? No. It's not based, it is based off of a book. But It is, right? Yeah. Okay. It is. But that's that's not it. You were very, very close, though. Oh, Contact. Who's the producer? Oh, uh, Carl Sagan. Yep. There you go. Should have sent a poet. <laughs> My gosh. I was thinking about that movie this week, actually. What did the aliens want to communicate to her? Huh? Oh. What did the aliens want to communicate to her? They, we spent a lot of money on that thing. Not in real life, obviously. But the government spent a lot of money so that she could go that on a aliens trip. aliens exist. Because that's the and? whole thing is like they're trying to like gently spoiler alert. Um, they're trying to gently ease us into knowing that aliens are out there without them. So invading. literally one person at a time gets to go on a trip. Maybe. I know it's a ham fisted attempt to be like, oh, science. They're and reaching are the out same. to like millions of worlds, though. So it's not like they can just dial into each one. These arrogant, elitist ivory tower aliens are getting governments all over the galaxy to spend hard-earned taxpayer dollars on expensive towers. How about they send us, Only you know... Only to have a rich guy build another one. Yeah, exactly, right? So that, what? So a scientist can have a dream. And, oh, the tape's really long, so we know anecdotally what she said might be true. None of it matters. Because one person knows. So it's, it's the type of story that makes sense in a movie because the audience is like they're with her so it's like oh she's right but then what are they doing what do they want us to do build us a portal i don't know tell us how to go faster than light i don't it seems stupid I like the it. aliens seem like they're out of touch with planets that could use other other bits of knowledge just saying instead of here's Maybe. a really expensive way to understand us 
Anyways, that is our romancing the stone. <laughs> stone. So yeah, that was we got on some it's pretty some weird tangents. Weird tangents, yeah. Next episode is with your brother. So do you want to announce it? Point break. And Fast and the Furious. With Oh, with Dima, my brother. <laughs> he's he's gonna be on the show. It's great. Yep. Next episode is Point Break slash Fast and the Furious. I'm ready for it and I don't know how you feel is, about this it. This is a throwback. This is a throwback to when Fast and the Furious was about racing cars. Yeah. And this will be the last in the series, uh, this series too. So bid farewell to it and we will bid farewell to you. All right. Uh, make sure to follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all that good sort of stuff. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes or on Spotify, we'd really appreciate that. On Spotify, if you're in the app, you can just scroll up to the top to our little page. There's a star up there, and you can rate us on there. That really helps to make our show a whole lot more visible. Or if you just want to share us with family and friends, you're welcome to do that, too. Got to say thanks to John for the use of the graphic, and to Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. Mm -hmm.